Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thanks so much for tuning in. We've got a lot to cram in, as you know, I always say at the beginning, and it's always true. Um, If it's okay with all of you, I'm going to reflect on several events or exchanges or eruptions of recent days that have triggered the question, in my mind anyway, of where power really lies. I know it's been a theme of ours in the Rock and Roll Politics Cooperative, uh, a recurring theme, but not recently, actually. I think the last time we explored this theme is when we debated what would really improve the NHS in terms of reforms, Um, not the kind of superficial glib term reform and everyone goes oh yeah how fantastic people are contemplating reform we actually explored what really would reform the nhs and therefore we had to explore where power lay within that complex organization and i'm going to explore that more widely and then we go to your questions which have been brilliant and pouring in at the moment uh inevitably israel gaza Uh, reflections on the COVID inquiry and the deeper lessons, because for new listeners, and there are new listeners every week, we delve deep here, uh, and on many other topics too. And if we don't get through as many as I hope we can get through, um, perhaps there are so many at the moment, because so much is whirring around British politics. Um, Might have to do a second one, but that's not a pledge. Um, it's not going to necessarily happen. Before all of that, a um, couple of notices. First of all, I'm sorry for those of you who had tickets for the show at the Rope Tackle Art Centre in Shoreham last week. Uh, it was on the evening of the storm that was meant to kind of completely submerge the South Coast and cancel all trains back to London and all the rest of it. So in discussion with the uh, legendary uh, kind of figure who presides over the rope tackle, we agreed to postpone it. Um, Then, of course, I think some of you on the South Coast will know better than me, it wasn't as wild and dramatic as build. But had I gone, it would have been. But anyway, that's now been rearranged for Monday, November the 20th. So hopefully see you all there for that. I hope you're able to change the tickets and it doesn't screw things up too much. And then there is the Christmas special at King's Place on Monday, December the 18th, where we reflect on this astonishing year and dare to look ahead to what will be almost certainly the election year and have some fun and drink some wine. Um, And tickets for both of those at the The link will be on the blurb for the podcast and, of course, at the relevant uh, websites. So see you at one of those, hopefully. Now, I want to just kind of reflect on this question of where power lies by purely reflecting on the kind of events that triggered the question yet again for me. Um, Let's begin with Sunak's interview with Elon Musk, which has been pilloried for lots of reasons and fairly justifiably as a kind of misjudged, rather self-indulgent kind of exercise for Rishi Sunak. But I kind of think, you know, that that side of it is 
not especially relevant. If uh, Sunak was presiding over a 25-point lead, uh, he wouldn't be criticised for uh, indulging his kind of uh, interests and fascination with Musk. It's for other reasons that he got pilloried for that. But what I found more interesting was the dynamic. Here was the elected prime minister of a country in spite of its steep economic decline and uh, decline as a respected power across the world over the last 13-odd years, um, still a member of the G7 and still a player to some extent on the international stage. Um, but anyone watching that, say from Mars, or indeed from, I don't know, Shoreham, would form the impression that Elon Musk was the mighty figure and the elected prime minister of this G7 country was paying homage. And in some respects, that observation of the dynamic would be correct. There is Sunak probably in the dying months of his premiership, with power inevitably leaving him. The, we are speaking in the week of the King's Speech, the legislative program for the coming 12 months. Much of the propositions as outlined by King Charles will not take legislative form. And those that do take legislative form uh, will do so in an attempt to cause trouble for Labour, rather than having profound, long-term, practical impact on the UK. So Sunak is, in some respects, a increasingly powerless Prime Minister, trying to manage a Conservative Party that has become impossible to manage, um, and 20 points behind in the polls with the clock ticking towards the next general election. Even so, it is weird that this mighty figure, uh, Musk, one of the richest people in the world, was seen in that dynamic really as the more powerful figure, the figure who understood the mighty new technology that was going to change our lives, the figure who had revolutionized electric cars, the figure who had screwed up Twitter, but of course, in theory, has the power to make it better again. Power, power, power. Lying in the unelected figure uh, compared with the elected prime minister. Now, this is not always the case, of course, in the rhythms of British politics. As we discussed last week in our time together, Johnson, for a time, had immense power. Uh, when he won in December 2019 the general election and then gained Hartlepool in a by-election, his popularity and the fact that the parliament was relatively new and Britain was in the midst of mind-boggling crises, which, of course, he famously failed to rise to, COVID and Brexit, gave Johnson power. So it's not always the case. And yet it felt striking and weird and odd. How has Musk become so mighty? Is the might sinister, deserved, constructive? 
Um, and is there anything that anyone can do about non-elected might? We can do things with elected power. We can get rid of them. But these very powerful global figures in the non-elected entrepreneurial private sector are with us permanently, and there's very little we can do about it. I just merely make that observation. Now let's move on to the COVID inquiry, uh, which was kind of absolutely fascinating without being remotely surprising, to be honest. We knew number 10 was chaotic. But once again, it raised the question, the testimonies of Dominic Cummings and Helen McNamara, one, a mighty special advisor for a time, although it clearly didn't seem that to the mighty special advisor Cummings. He kept on describing, oh, we faced this nightmare, we faced this nightmare, the cabinet was useless, I wanted a smaller cabinet, he wouldn't do it, Johnson. And yet Helen McNamara described him as kind of freakishly powerful as a special advisor. But the interesting thing really about their testimonies, I mean, inevitably Cummings' language got picked up. That was the least interesting bit about it. We, we, we know about his language. What was interesting was that in many respects, Cummings and McNamara, wholly different personalities, coming from different places in the orbit of power in Number 10 and Whitehall, one a senior civil servant, one a special advisor, um, kind of agreed that part of the issue, I mean, we all know Johnson was uh, uh, fatally hopeless, fatal in terms of his own career, but for people who died unnecessarily uh, because of his approach to COVID. But there were deeper lessons. If you uh, read Cummings' testimony, uh, McNamara's testimony, very detailed, uh, and listen to their comments uh, at the inquiry, you get a sense of all of them pulling levers and nothing happening uh, because of overlapping lines of responsibility. Uh, the cabinet office in one place, number 10 in another, various agencies from NHS England to outposts of the Department of Health, all trying to do different things, and no one fully in control. It was a picture of incompetence and fragmentation, which led to a sense of helplessness. I mean, Cummings, certainly in the early phases of uh, COVID, just after that December 2019 election, was powerful, really powerful. And yet clearly he felt impotent. He pulled levers and nothing happened. McNamara, famously from her testimony, came into a meeting on March the 13th, 2020, and uh, exclaimed, we're fucked. And by that, she meant the strategy that had come together messily and without much deep thought was doomed and that they needed to change. And incidentally, Cummings agreed that they needed to change. I think um, on much of COVID, Cummings' instincts were right and didn't differ that much, actually, with McNamara's. Uh, he used vile language against her, but as I say, I think that's fairly peripheral because we know that about Cummings. 
And it's very interesting, this focus on the day, Friday, March the 13th, 2020. Uh, because I remember that day, I mean, many of you might as well, it wasn't actually, the lockdown was still some way off, it shouldn't have been. But here is another example about power and connection. As I say, their testimony suggests power was all over the place um, and and levers were pulled and nothing happened. And then sometimes things did happen that weren't meant to happen. It was chaos. And it was a structural chaos. Was it the cabinet secretary who could pull levers? Dominic Cummings thought so, according to his evidence at times. Clearly, the cabinet secretary felt pretty impotent. Johnson was powerful, as we've already discussed, but fleetingly. He was, um, of course, removed by the summer before last. And, and there was another more fundamental disconnect between power, the power of the state and its connection with all of us, uh, the voters, the people. And this, I think, is uh, important uh, because what happened on Friday, March 13th, to me personally, very trivial example, but it shows the degree to which when the state is in chaos and doesn't function properly or in a way that's well-resourced, people don't celebrate their freedom from the state, as Thatcher used to argue they would do and should do. They are terrified. So on Friday, March 13th, Remember, most of Europe had locked down, and it was clear COVID had already arrived in the UK. But the government was still saying, do what you want, decide for yourselves. So I was on this train going to Glasgow for the Glasgow Book Festival. And we had a kind of great itinerary lined up. And on the way back, I was going to speak at this wonderful festival uh, in the Lake District uh, at the theatre on the lake. So it was going to be a great weekend. But it was clear to me that none of it should be happening. And yet the festivals, no one in government was saying, don't run these public events. And it was still happening, both of them. So got on this train and thought, God, this is crazy. And by the time we got to Preston, uh, I got a call from the publishers saying, the Glasgow Book Festival had decided to cancel all other events. People were arriving terrified in audiences and on stage. So we all got off this train at Preston and had to buy a ticket back to King's Cross. And there were about four other authors heading the same way. And they all expressed relief that the Glasgow Book Festival had in a kind of traumatic, uh, kind of feverish moment decided to cancel. No advice from the government, no instruction from the state to do this. People left to fend for themselves. And um, as a result of that, uh, it was really interesting queue out for tickets. The other authors were saying they were scared that when they signed books, people would breathe over them and might they might get COVID and they didn't know what to do. Everyone in a state of anguish because the state was not making any connection with them. And uh, by the way, at this phase still, Johnson was hailing this freedom compared with the rest of Europe. Go to Twickenham, go to blah, 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 blah. Um, And then the, on the way back, the people who were running the Lake District Festival said, will, will you still come? We're still, we're still functioning. 
And I said, no way, I'm kind of scared. So I had to decide not to go. And in the end, I think they had to cancel at the last moment a load of events. Those they did hold, people didn't turn up. But people were having to decide for themselves. Um, the state had let them down. And this happens all the bloody time in Britain at the moment. People who get trains, uh, all the talk is, you know, the chaos at, say, King's Cross in London when you look up and see a board of cancelled trains and so on. Uh, it is about a disconnect between what people need from a functioning, well-resourced state uh, with a sense of its responsibility to people. And when that connection is made, it, it's kind of very interesting. And it's when uh, power works and is seen to be benevolent. I was thinking of one example. So the COVID is an example of the disconnect in Mar on March the 13th. Helen McNamara, we're fucked. Me on a train with people in agony working out whether to run a book festival or not. Um, but I was thinking the other day about how, on one level, unfair it is in London that people over 60 get this kind of free travel card, um, worth a heck of a lot of money if you use it a lot. Um, but on another, it's brilliant because it makes a connection in a benevolent way between the state and those in all kinds of different ways, whether they're wealthy, poor, or whatever, who are dependent on it in different ways. And I remember uh, once sitting at a spectator lunch with um, Lord Young. Do you remember Lord Young? He was the cabinet minister who Thatcher used to say, he brings me solutions, whereas other cabinet ministers bring me problems. Very wealthy business person of his own in his own right before he went into Thatcher's cabinet anyway when I saw him he had long retired from all of that he was pretty old but he was saying how much he loved this oyster card um, he didn't need he was rich you know he had more money than he would ever spend but he loved this oyster card which gave him free travel and he said he thought it was a reward for the hard work he had put in and all the rest of it even he a right-wing Tory who was wealthy celebrated this connection with the state. And that's what happens in a way when power works, connections are made. It doesn't always have to be as expensive as subsidizing people's travel, but sometimes it does. And this dysfunctionality highlighted by COVID, I think does have wider implications about why, first of all, people are turning away from the Tories, you know, this phrase, nothing bloody works in Britain, nothing bloody works. But more than that, uh, the next day at the COVID inquiry after Helen McNamara, actually, Simon Stevens from NHS England, who was in charge during COVID of NHS England, gave really interesting testimony. And one of the things he said of Hancock, who um, is kind of the whipping boy of this whole thing, uh, that, you know, that Hancock, if people were going to die, Hancock wanted to decide which ones were going to die. And all hell broke loose. You'll have read about it and seen it on Twitter and all the rest of it, if you can still function with Twitter uh, after the mighty Musk has uh, ruined it. 
But this was really interesting because I think what Hancock was saying, and don't worry, I know he is a kind of narcissistic uh, Alan Partridge figure, but I think what Hancock would have been saying and thinking is this. As health secretary, I will be held accountable for deaths in an overwhelmed NHS. And therefore, I must have input into the sequence that brings this about and some responsibility for what happens, because it will be me on the Today programme at 10 past eight held to account. And on that, he is right, because what has happened in England, and to some extent the rest of the UK too, is a theoretical move away from elected governments being responsible. The creation of NHS England is a classic example of that. Who has the power? The Health Secretary or NHS England? It's not clear. And during the COVID press conferences in number 10, virtually daily for much of COVID, Simon Stevens and Matt Hancock never appear together because it would have been embarrassing if they disagreed. It would have been kind of embarrassing almost if they agreed because who was responsible for what? It's not clear. But because of the anti-politics mood, there has been a massive expansion of non-elected quangos or the private sector taking responsibility, like for the railways, um, the private train companies being one agent of many in the fragmented railways. So who is responsible? And when you can't really answer that question, you know you're in a sort of chaotic world. And you can sort of widen it in a way. You know, it's very interesting with the Bank of England, there's big focus on the Bank of England at the moment, and whether they are making the right calls on economic policy. And yet, who will be held account for economic policy? There's absolutely no doubt about it. Sunak and Hunt and Truss and Johnson. Even though in one key area, it's why various ministers have briefed against the Bank of England, they are the powerless ones because in 1997, to reassure the markets, to provide a kind of stable base for their other ambitious plans or relatively ambitious plans, uh, Gordon Brown made the Bank of England independent and gave it, an unelected body, considerable power. So we're about to enter an election year of huge importance and yet power lies well beyond an elected government, an elected prime minister. Uh, it's a, it, it is, really matters who wins this election. Don't get me wrong about that. And politics really matters. Um, you know, as we talked about about the Middle East a few weeks ago, you know, when politics fails, force comes in. So politics really matters. But power and its distribution in Britain since the 80s. So Margaret Thatcher created loads of quangos because she loathed local government, but the, the quangos went beyond that. And they carried on in the 90s as well. Um, so there's that, there's the private sector, and in this sort of global economy, you have people like Musk or, you know, 
Facebook and these agencies of immense power. It's it's often said of Nick Clegg, uh, truthfully, I think, that he's more powerful now, right at the top of Facebook, than he was as deputy prime minister. So anyway, uh, in the week of the King's speech with a lot of focus on, you know, what the elected government wants to do or the elected prime minister, where does power lie? And this is what makes me dare to hope that Keir Starmer is on to something with his so-called missions or mission-led government, because it is just possible it's equally possible none of it turns into very much. But it is just possible that in his focus on missions, you create a more coordinated, holistic approach to government and delivery, where the lines of responsibility and accountability are clear. One of the fascinating things about Dominic Cummings, he's clearly a figure on the right, but there's a bit of him that's on the left. He's fascinated by the lack of accountability and lack of scrutiny within Whitehall and government. And I wonder whether that mission-led approach with um, someone like Sue Gray, who understands Whitehall, presumably its strengths and weaknesses, uh, whether there's some hope that these lines of responsibility, accountability and scrutiny uh, become deeper and uh, the sense of where power lies becomes clearer. Because in the current chaos, you get what we all experienced on March the 13th in our different ways, 2020. You can't catch a train knowing it will get you there, etc. Um, anyway, there are just a few opening uh, thoughts about where power lies. Now over to you. And if you want to join in our never-ending debate and conversation, uh, the email address is got a pen. Um, it's steverick14 at icloud.com. And, oh, yeah, if you do like the podcast, please leave a review, but only if you really like it, you know, five stars. And um, uh, I, uh, so, someone very kindly explained how you do that on Spotify. It's very easy on the iPhone app and things. That would be great. And, yeah, tell a friend and member of your family, this is the podcast where we delve deep. And we really do with some brilliant questions. Um, so I'm going to start on Israel-Gaza. Uh, there are a lot of points being made still. Uh, the cooperative is absolutely immersed in a, in a nuanced way in this complex nightmare. Uh, and uh, Danny Evans asked some interesting questions. Why did Hamas attack? Specifically, what were the objectives of the attack and were they achieved? Why kill civilians? Why take hostages? Why release some? What was the long-term or political aim of the attack? He says, in all the analysis and commentary, I haven't heard these questions answered. And they are interesting and important questions. And I don't think it's entirely clear. There's a lot of speculation that Hamas chose this moment because Israel was kind of forming a relationship of sorts with Saudi Arabia. 
and some of the other Arab states, and they wanted to destabilize. Um, but one of the things Hamas must have calculated would be Israel retaliating in the way it is. And they must have gone ahead on the assumption that they wanted Israel to retaliate in the way it is. I, I can't see how that couldn't have been part of their calculation. So in doing so, is Israel challenging Hamas to the point of removing Hamas, which is Israel's war aim, or actually responding in a way that Hamas assumed and therefore must have almost looked to? Um, in terms of their strategy with hostages, well, it gives them leverage, doesn't it, I guess, of sorts. And we know their long-term aim, although the long-term aim of the attack is not clear, but the long-term aim, of course, is the removal of Israel through violent means. Um, but that attack in itself wasn't going to do it. But the destabilizing impact in Israel's response could lead in all sorts of different uh, directions. Okay, uh, Simon Lockyer uh, has uh, uh, reflections. One of the themes we've been following in this podcast um, is whether there are any parallels with uh, Northern Ireland. And Simon says, I listened intently to the discussion regarding the Good Friday Agreement. Parallels as in, is there any hope that can be derived from what happened in Northern Ireland? And Simon says, uh, yeah, the Good Friday Agreement, a possible solution to the Gaza situation. I wondered if the Omar bomb enabled people who would have supported the fight to realise the public support was being lost with those sorts of acts. Warrington, the Warrington bombing, of course, which happened in England, also comes to mind. Did this give added impetus to the push to get the disparate groups talking? I think that's an interesting question. Sometimes a horrendous act of violence can make the prospects of some peaceful settlement miles away into the distance. And that, of course, is the fear of uh, the consequence of October the 7th. But there are times when it reinforces in those who ache for security and uh, a long-term peaceful settlement, obviously in this case, the Middle East, a, a two-state solution, uh, it, it, it propels them towards it. And I think you're right, actually. The horrors of uh, some of the uh, uh, bombings that took place in the 1990s, I think by then people like Adams had already long decided uh, that that wasn't the way that would work, but he had to carry you know, vast numbers with him on an alternative route. And I think you're right, these horrors, which didn't lead anywhere substantial beyond everyone being outraged, were factors, actually. Now, whether that will happen after the horror of October the 7th and now the horror being played out in Gaza, we just don't know. It doesn't look like that at the moment. Um, okay, um, Margaret Hickman has said, I uh, hope this finds you well. Drinking a glass of red wine, reflecting on momentous times. Uh, oh, thank you. Um, so, Margaret says, so enjoy your podcast and often wished I lived in London to come to King's Place. Well, do come to King's Place. Uh, Margaret says she lives in Bristol. Definitely do a live show in Bristol. It would be a perfect venue for me in some ways. Well, I've got to find the venue. Perfect city. Um Anyway, Margaret was uh, responding. I, I tweeted about the hopelessness of 
the way the UK's government has governed as exposed by the COVID inquiry. And it, she said, it made me think about Keir Starmer and the possibility of some light being shed on the appalling situation in the Middle East. My sense is that Keir Starmer, unlike so many of our former prime ministers, has a sense of how to manage complex organisations. I find his comments on LBC abhorrent. I, that was the interview where he appeared to say he uh, thought it was acceptable for Israel to block uh, food and power supplies to Gaza. I did, though, think his well-constructed and credible argument that he presented at Chatham House last week showed someone who realised the job that needed to be done and carried it out with stature. I'm sure he's surrounded by young bucks, but his appointment of Sue Gray showed courage and understanding about the job he hopes to do. Um, yeah, I think that um, that speech was well-balanced. Uh, last week's podcast came out before the speech, and it was a well-constructed speech. One of the interesting things about that speech was Keir Starmer explained why he was against the ceasefire. And now there are many reasons why, which we've explored before in this podcast. Um, but the argument that it froze the conflict and didn't resolve it uh, between two sides who kind of wanted the destruction of the other was an explanation as to why. And I think there's a lesson there for Keir Starmer, uh, which is he needs to explain far more often why he's making a proposition. Going back to his missions, you know, why has he opted for missions? You know, the, the, the answering the why question enables a leader to then frame an argument instead of making an assertion without kind of explaining why the assertion is valid. And he did that in that speech. Uh, Nathan Doran, it's not, it's Natan, I think, the pronunciation. Excuse me uh, if I've got that wrong. Let me know. Um, the last few weeks have been very difficult for me as a Jew and an Israeli living in London. I've just watched Keir Starmer's speech. A few reflections. I thought he did well, was mature and thoughtful, and looked like a credible prime minister. He recognised the justified grievances of both Israelis and Palestinians. But the reflection perhaps more relevant to this conversation was that it struck me as a good and recently too rare bit of political teaching. You've spoken powerfully about the need for this in the past, and I think this time Kit Summer deserves credit for doing it. Um, yeah, uh, well, that kind of reinforces my point. You have to be... Uh, it's not an added bonus if you can do it. As a leader, you have to be a political teacher. And that speech was an, a, an attempt to do that, to say he addressed the why question. Um, he's not just saying, you know, I continue to support a ceasefire, but um, we must make sure that humanitarian aid gets through. Why? And then you put the case. Now, many will disagree, but you framed an argument, and I think it is an example of uh, teaching. A uh, very interesting uh, email from John Williams, who was a, a legendary figure in the BBC, but then in, in Ireland as well. Uh, and he, he said, fascinating to hear one of the collective raise uh, Michael D. Higgins' remarks as a counter to Starmer, Sumanak, and the rest of the official UK response to the Middle East. Um, yeah, uh, we had a really interesting email with, uh, I read out a bit of it, um, 
the uh, early remarks from Higgins uh, on it, which I thought came across, and so did the emailer, as empathic, nuanced, and, and impressive. But anyway, uh, John writes, worth saying, official Ireland is outraged by his remarks. He's a constitutional head of state. Imagine King Charles putting out that statement. He's way over his skis. It's not his role to say such things. The Irish constitution is clear. It's the role of the Irish government to make foreign policy. But in his second and final seven-year term, having won re-election on the first count with 55% of the vote and aged 82, he's becoming increasingly loose-lipped. The issue is not what he said, but what if his successors choose to use their office to say something more controversial. So there we are. Um, it, it seemed to me well written, but I hadn't quite realised his constitutional status was such that he shouldn't have been saying any of it. Uh, so that's really uh, interesting. Uh, thank you, John. Uh, Ian Manners emailed with a whole range of pertinent questions. This whole thing raises so many questions. And Ian says he recommends the podcast to his friends. That's the way to get things read out, Ian. Get your friends involved, and then you, uh, I read some of the thing out. Anyway, uh, Ian says, there's much call for a ceasefire in Gaza, but what does Israel get in return for the ceasefire? Has anyone said how Hamas is to be held to account for what they did or what security guarantees will be given to Israel? I follow many on the left who say the UK and Labour should back a ceasefire and Israel should accede to it because it would save innocent Palestinian lives. Unfortunately, the problem with that is that Israelis will say that they are bombing Hamas and that the civilian deaths are Hamas's fault and not Israel's. And therefore, how does any Israeli politician sell the idea of a ceasefire to their own public? They all are valid questions. A ceasefire in itself uh, does not answer them. Indeed, as you suggest, uh, triggers them. I suppose the alternative route, though, is this. By saying you're opposed to a ceasefire, are you saying that you believe that the route Israel has taken will lead to greater security for Israel as a response to October the 7th, will lead within international law, in inverted commas, to the removal of Hamas. And that, I think, is already being strained by what is happening in Gaza. Um, and there is an alternative argument which suggests a ceasefire would have to be the beginning of a long alternative route with a single aim, which is to establish uh, a secure Israel and a secure settlement for the Palestinians. Um, now, I know that too raises about 10,000 questions, but thank you for asking some of them. Uh, talking of which, uh, uh, Bender Grosvenor says, I was shocked to hear you describe Keir Summers' interview on LBC as being complicit in genocide. I don't think I did say, I, th this isn't scripted, so I might have done. I think I was saying that uh, in appearing, although he denies it, to say that Israel can get the all clear to hold back fuel supplies, food supplies, etc., that uh, th th potentially that kind of thing could happen. But I, I mean, obviously, if you haven't got any food or fuel, you're not going to survive for very long. But yeah, these terms are so 
overused your right to call me up on it if I, I said it in a kind of casual way because they deserve and should have precise definition. Although I have to say a lot of the terminology being applied to this current dark nightmare is imprecise. But thank you for calling me up on it. Uh, dear Stephen, the cooperative, I'm a relatively new listener. I'm 38 and live in South Wales. And I really appreciate the considered approach to policy. Oh, thank you very much. Especially when there seems to be a proliferation of hot takes. Yeah, I mean, forget about all these other podcasts erupting around us. Uh, we delve deep together. Um, and we don't always agree, but we disagree agreeably. But we genuinely disagree at times. Anyway, and, and which seek to make sense of what's happening. Uh, I also love the sense of community. Oh, yeah, absolutely. This is definitely all one uh, big community. Someone, someone on uh, Twitter said the other day, um, uh, does everyone in the cooperative get paid? I, I think they were joking, but I'm not sure if they want a John Lewis kind of style arrangement. Uh, anyway, uh, back to, uh, yeah, Dr. Ruth Smith. First, given the revelations about the scale of the sheer incompetence of Johnson, we're moving on now to the implications of COVID during the pandemic. How much blame for his rise to power can be attributed to the top journalists? I'm wary of contributing to the personalised attacks journalists face, especially female journalists. However, surely those journalists inside the Westminster bubble were acutely aware of Johnson's mendacity and decision and lack of integrity. Isn't it their job to inform the public who perhaps aren't as politically engaged? Um, yeah, oh, before I respond to that, Ruth says, secondly, can I become an official member of the cooperative? I'm afraid I can't bake, make jams, and I definitely don't run marathons, but I'm a psychotherapist, so I'm happy to offer support to my fellow members of the cooperative as we navigate this never-ending Tory psychodrama. Yeah, accept it. Your offer is accepted. We need all the help we can get on that front, Ruth. So thank you very much. In terms of the substance of your point... Uh, you're right that to understand the Johnson Premiership, you partly have to spend quite a lot of time, and I hope historians will do so, on the media. He had the doting support of the Mail, the Mail on Sunday, the Telegraph, the Sun, the Express, and that, uh, to some extent, at times, uh, the news pages of the Times, the editorials of the Times, not most of their columnists, but some, um, and that kind of influences the BBC and the way they approach it. But there was some great work done actually early on or relatively early on with COVID by the Sunday Times exposing the chaos of Johnson's leadership um, and, and a couple of other things. We all kind of knew. So how did we know? Did we form that impression? For example, all our experiences on Friday, March the 13th, or was it partly mediated? But you're right that he had not just a soft media, but a doting media portraying him as a sort of Churchillian war leader when a lot of them knew actually what was really happening was total chaos. Um, thank you very much, Dr. Ruth Smith. And yeah, if you could give us any therapeutic guidance in this crazy world we're all trying to make sense of, hugely appreciate it. J. 
Jeff Strange, an Englishman in West Cork. Uh, where would we be without Dominic Cummings at number 10? I'm not the guy's biggest fan, but it seems without him, the UK and NHS would have been in an even more parlous state. Um, yeah, I, I, curiously, I agree. Um, I think uh, Cummings was on broadly the right side of the argument. And his fascination with the state and how to deliver and how it needs to be reformed kind of in some ways places Cummings on the left, I think. He doesn't realise that. Most people don't. But I think he's partly on the left in a curious way. Uh, Jeff adds, I totally concur with your French cooperative co contributor, Dominica, and her disagreement with Canon Arbuthnot's rather skewed view of Irish history. Once I've calmed down and pondered, I will be her seconder in that debate. That was uh, uh, Canon Paul Arbuthnot. Uh, put an argument about the problems with too many parallels because they just don't exist with the what happened in Northern Ireland and Good Friday Agreement, uh, and that triggered a whole debate as well. Um, and with a uh, lot supporting uh, Paul, lots of them uh, like Jeff supporting Dominica. Uh, Stephen Townsley, the word hindsight seems to be coming up at the COVID inquiry, mostly as a defence. Officials and politicians saying the response was inadequate in hindsight. Yet there was plenty of foresight. In 2013, the government identified an epidemic as the number one threat to the UK. Cameron made series including this threat. Theresa May, sorry, speeches. Theresa May set up a government planning unit to deal with the threat. Boris Johnson abolished it in 2019. Hindsight was wholly unnecessary. The government knew the threat. Using the hindsight argument is totally wrong. Very good point. Um, this thing of if we knew now what we didn't know then, you know, we knew. And, of course, the planning was for the wrong epidemic. And then uh, Hancock told the likes of Helen McNamara and Cummings there was a plan in place. Then they discovered there wasn't. Um, it was part of the chaos, and you don't need hindsight. And Britain had a big advantage in 2020 in that it, as a kind of distant island, it saw what was happening in Spain, Italy, France, where drastic lockdowns were having to be in place and deaths and hospitals being overwhelmed. And Johnson thought for some reason Britain wouldn't be affected. His kind of odd mix of British exceptionalism, libertarianism, and uselessness, just a kind of casual indifference to reality uh, in such a weird way. Um, th th those were the issues. Uh, you're, and you're right, they can't claim hindsight. Um, we've got so many deep themes. I hope you're all running and baking and doing your therapy and everything. But I'm just going to perhaps uh, look at one more and then I'm going to keep all the other questions because they're brilliant and they need. I need to return to them. Uh, but remember we were having a debate with wider implications about Brexit and whether once the referendum was called, it was inevitable that Britain would vote out or whether it was partly down to the big personalities. And it's kind of, you know, the Johnsons and the Cummings and so on that led to Britain leaving. Anyway, it was a debate triggered by Nick Radcliffe from Edinburgh. And he's replied to the subsequent debate. 
And he says, it's been interesting to hear you and other listeners on the Brexit referendum, but I think we're slightly talking past each other. I completely agree that it was always going to be difficult because we'd had 30 years of constant denigration of the EU. I also agree referendums are pretty terrible and that Cameron was very foolish to call it. But given the 52-48 result, your claim is that Farage, Johnson and Cummings created at most a 2% uh, swing to leave from when the referendum was called. That seems to me an extraordinary claim. I would make several points. By the way, I don't think they even made that much of a swing, Nick. I, I think, in a way, it's a miracle it was as narrow as 52-48 from when it was called. But anyway, back to Nick. Johnson and Farage were clearly the most articulate, effective campaigners on Brexit. Cummings, for all his faults, was obsessive and effective. His take-back-control slogan was, as you, me, have often said, very clever. It was, I agree. Um, the £350 million per week claim on the bus and the weaponising of the claim that Turkey was about to be admitted to the EU were both huge stories during the campaign. Remain was ahead in the polls fairly consistently from the start of 2015 to the eve of the vote in June 2016, uh, but the polls tightened dramatically in the run-up to the vote. Um, yeah, all good points. We can't run the counterfactual, of course, but I find it hard to believe that those three weren't responsible for at least a two percentage point swing. Um, yeah, well, there we go. It's a, it's a chapter in my book on turning points. And as Nick says, this should lead to a bonanza sale. Uh, there's a chapter on Brexit as a turning point, but it begins that chapter in the book um, when we joined in 73, because from that moment on, there was a deeply disturbed relationship at, with, at a political level, less so in the country, I think, but at a political level with Europe. Um, so, oh yeah, thanks. He recommends the book, which is great because we disagree on this element of it. Um, oh, and Nichols, uh, uh, I found and watched the Michael Sheen Valley's Rebellion program recommended by one of your correspondents. It's excellent. And I think illustrates the very bad context for the referendum being held. Um, yeah, this was uh, someone else who agreed with me that we were always going to, we, Britain was going to vote to leave the moment Cameron held it. And uh, there was a great email about Valley's Rebellion, which is on the iPlayer, I think, which shows the disconnect, which goes back to the opening themes of this podcast between the state and the electorate. It had become utterly disconnected by the time Cameron had called it. And anyway, I haven't watched it yet. Uh, but if Nick recommends it, I reinforce that recommendation. Um, so, well, we've been going for some time and you'll have done all kinds of things. We'll have loads to do. Um, so I'm going to leave it there, but I'm going to come back maybe towards the end of uh, the week. If not, I'll save some of these questions for next week. But look out, do subscribe in case I pop up with uh, a question time special because there are loads here. We've got... Um, uh, Paul Cooper on uh, turnouts and low turnouts and whether there should be compulsory voting. Uh, a really interesting question about Peter Fanning and the role of the uh, Treasury because, um, yeah, uh, Peter worked at the Treasury and slightly disagrees with my caricature. Venetia Kane wonders whether I would like being an MP because uh, I'd miss the cooperative. I, I could still do the podcast as a MP. Uh, you know, I'm really 
do think it's a great thing to do. Uh, yeah, we've got a white van man, Andy Davis, and please say out of hospital, um, uh, uh, about the rise of reform as a political force. Uh, it's, it's worth, yeah, he's, as ever with white van man, he's onto something. You know, the, 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 it's, it's not led by a charismatic figure like Farage reform, but they will have a role to play in the election and perhaps beyond. Yeah, uh, we've got one from uh, B. Harwood. I'm not quite sure of your first name, Mr. Harwood, um, about how you uh, or how Labour legitimised the idea of public spending with phrases. Uh, we're investing in the country's future. We're investing in this country's health and transport. We, this will make us more productive. We'll borrow to invest. I think in fairness, they do say it, but I'm a great fan of the term investment um, because when it's used for our private income, we get really excited. Oh, I'm investing in this. I'm investing in these shares. Oh, yeah, my investment's going well or my investment's going badly. But then tax is seen as a punishment and spending as a waste. And that culture can be changed by all kinds of things, but language is one of them. So as ever, tons of tons of great, great uh, questions. So yeah, we need to get together again soon. Can't promise, not a pledge to pop up at the end of the week. Got quite a busy week, and I know you'll have as well. But if not, more of those brilliant questions when we get together early next week. So, yeah, as I say, please book up for the live shows because we kind of need to get together in one place um, and have some fun and delve even deeper over an evening and a glass or two of wine. And, yeah, see you all very soon. Oh, yeah, and thank you for subscribing, those of you who do, for Patreon. Uh, a bonus is going to appear very shortly for November. Uh, just got to have one discussion with the legendary, I'm calling everyone legendary these days, it's part of um, uh, something, uh, you know, in my mind at the moment, uh, with the great podmasters who um, produce this uh, podcast uh, about precisely what it's going to be. But if you subscribe to Patreon, you get a whole range of uh, bonus podcasts and other things as well, rock and roll politics mugs and mats for putting your mug on and all that kind of thing anyway look thank you very much we're in extraordinary times um and dangerous times um and politically in britain very interesting times so let's keep together do pass on the word about the podcast and, and tell people to subscribe then they get it automatically without having to think about it um and if you could leave a re review that would be great but in the meantime Let's stay together and make sense of it all. Thanks so much. Bye.